Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Listen, all you New Yorkers. Hello. I hope no one's eating dinner. Something like that. What's up, everybody? It's 10 o'clock on Monday night, which means it's time for the next best thing. Dear Jesus. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, and I'll be with you for the next two hours. Well, get ready. Don't go anywhere. We have a great, 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 great show lined up for you tonight. I can't even contain myself. But before we get to any of that, we'd like to kick the show off by doing what we always do, and that is review all of the great and the not-so-great things that have happened on... This Day in History. Today is November 6th, National Nachos Day and National Saxophone Day. Yeah, we can't get gun control passed or really anything important, but someone made sure that we got National Nachos Day and National Saxophone Day. Feel good, America. On this day in 1860... Abraham Lincoln was elected to be the 16th President of these United States. On this day, one year later in 1861, Jefferson Davis was elected to be the President of the Confederacy of the United States, the Confederate States of America. On this day, in 1861, the inventor of basketball, James Naismith, was born. And lastly, on this very special day in 1996, Michael Jordan scored 50 points for the 29th time in his NBA career. That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows, perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But who are we kidding? Probably not. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. Stay tuned. Oh, yeah. Holy sweet mother of God, it is 10 o'clock on a Monday night, so you know what that means. Is it time for your favorite show ever? No! But it is time for The Next Best Thing. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, keeping you company every Monday night from 10 until midnight right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Can you hear me? One second. Testing. One, two, three. Are we on? Great. Anywho, before we get into what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, let's do the housekeeping that we always have to take care of. Let's just get it out of the way right off the top. You can tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio. That's at Next Best Radio. Go ahead and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. A lot of stuff gets posted on our Facebook page, stuff that we talk about in any given episode, information links to pertinent sites, all that stuff usually goes up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash NBT radio. Also, if you're really feeling like you want to go all out and write more than 140 characters, more than something you'd feel comfortable posting on a Facebook wall, you can always feel free to send us an email. We are at nextbestthing at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And lastly, we do ask you to remember that we are fully listener and producer supported. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Brooklyn, if you like what you hear tonight, please consider going to our website, going to this show's page, and 
donating a little something-something to keep us in business. If you like what you hear tonight, well, a donation could ensure that you will get to hear more next week and the weeks after that. Uh, if you feel so inclined, you can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt. Again, that's rfb.nyc slash nbt. Oh, man, that was exhausting, wasn't it? It was for me. I'm sure it was for you, too. So, that's all the housekeeping I can think of right now. If I've forgotten anything... Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Good. Here's a fun news story, because, hey, we always need one of those. Hocus Pocus reboot has... There's going to be a Hocus Pocus revival, a remake of the movie Hocus Pocus. Did you know that? Well, it has real witches angry and spooked. Oh, yes. Last week, Deadline reported that the Disney Channel is in the early stages of development on a remake, a remake of the 1993 cult classic Walt Disney film Hocus Pocus. The new Hocus Pocus iteration will have a new cast, new director, and won't actually be a movie. It's going to be a TV movie. In other words, it's going to suck huge, hangy, donkey balls and should not be made. I knew there had been talk of making a sequel, but a dumbass remake? Why would you ever want to do that? The only reason anyone even wanted to see a sequel is because they want to see Bette Midler play that part again and see her reunited with Kathy and Jimmy and Sarah Jessica Parker. And I agree, that would be kind of fun and interesting, if for no other reason than just to see them reunite. But no one wants to see a remake. They don't want to see other people, likely nameless, new Disney Channel type kids, play these roles. Are you kidding? Stupid. This is stupid. And I'm not the only one who thinks this is a bad idea, folks. Oh, no, not even close. You know who hates this? You know who hates the idea of a crappy Hocus Pocus remake even more than me? Actual witches. Question mark. Apparently, many actual witches are disturbed by the 1993 cult classic, and they wonder whether the remake will take the opportunity to correct several wrongs in the original. What the actual fuck? Okay. Zoe, or Zoe, there's no umlaut, so I'm going to go with Zoe, a 20-year-old witch, told Vice News recently that Hocus Pocus made her worry that she'd be treated, quote, like a joke for practicing magic when she saw it for the first time five years ago. According to Zoe, Hocus Pocus is somewhat harmful because it portrays, quote, a real group of people in a frivolous and stereotypical light. I really hope the filmmakers are sensitive to the fact that they can influence how the general public views witches and pagans, and I just hope they make an effort for their portrayal to be more accurate than fantastical. She actually said, oh, Let's boy. Talk about All right, Zoe, first of all, let me just say right now that you will, in fact, continue to be treated like a joke. I'm sorry to have to tell you that, but let me tell you this. Hocus Pocus has nothing to do with it. If I were you, Zoe, I'd look a little more inward. Also, how the hell could a so-called actual witch have never seen Hocus Pocus until 2012, almost 20 years after the film came out? I mean, that movie's been a Halloween staple for decades, and, uh, it's about witches. It's about your people. As a Jew, do you really think I could get away with having not ever seen Schindler's List? Yep, totally comparable films. About my people, about your people. Look, apparently, according to this article, contemporary critiques of Hocus Pocus from the pagan community tend to focus on the fact that witches and magic are real. 
Okay, we should stop reading there. Uh, apparently, they focus on the fact that witches and magic are real, and they're not jokes, and that amplifying outdated stereotypes about the craft is damaging to the lived experiences of witches today. Quote, Witches do not feed on children or fly on broomsticks or worship Satan, wrote one detractor in an article published on Odyssey Online. Real witches also don't have the ability to turn a teenage boy into a black cat. Everything in this movie can be seen as offensive to real witches, despite how beautifully magical it is. End quote. Okay, let's talk to Sophie, a teenage witch. Not Sabrina, Sophie the teenage witch. She also finds the movie disrespectful and worries about the message it sends. Quote, I've never been an advocate for movies produced about murderous witches who cast harmful spells, really, because I do know a lot of advocates for those. <laughs> the fuck? She said that. Okay, this idea further perpetuates the stereotype that all witches are wicked and they only cast curses or kill the people they dislike. She went on to say that, quote, I sometimes hesitate before telling someone I'm a witch because I have the fear that they'll disregard me or, or think I'm hateful and ghoulish as a person or they'll think I boil frogs in my free time. All right, Sophie, girl, no one will innately think you're hateful or ghoulish. I don't even think people will assume you boil frogs upon learning that you're a witch. They'll just think that you are batshit crazy. And then, you know, once you start talking, you'll eliminate any doubt. Girls, seek professional help right away. Moving right along. Yikes. I don't know. I mean, Vice News, okay, I guess that's a real web news source. The hell. I mean... Do you know any angels who found angels in the outfield offensive? Because God knows I do. There's a support group I go to. What's going on here? All right, moving right along here. Okay, right now we're going to speak to friend of the show, John William Schiffbauer, former Deputy Communications Director for New York, the New York Republican State Committee. John, thanks for calling into the show. Are you currently in New York? Hey, Jonathan. No, unfortunately, I am not. Right now, I'm in Washington, D.C., but I will be in New York tomorrow. I'll be there to vote, and I'll be there to support uh, some of our great uh, citywide GOP candidates. Do you find it surprising and or unfortunate that a lot of people truly didn't realize that there was an election tomorrow? I'm not surprised at all. Uh, disappointed? No, not at all, because... Uh, turnout for citywide and also statewide elections has been trending down um, over the last 10 years. So I wasn't surprised at all. But you don't think that's unfortunate? I, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, getting people to come out and vote anymore is like going to the dentist. No one wants to do it. Well, true, until you have a ailing tooth. All right, John, you were last on the show on June 5th, and at that time... I just want to play a very short clip of something that we talked about. This I was mentioning how you had actually resigned from your position, your post, with the New York Republican State Committee once, I believe it was once you learned that Donald Trump really was going to be the nominee. Is that it was the day after the first uh, Super Tuesday. It was March. It was uh, Trump won the first big Super Tuesday on March 1st. I resigned on March 2nd. So there you go. And I was actually using that as an example and asking you whether or not you thought Reince Priebus should resign. And here's what you had to say. Uh, it was, it's a little, the circumstances are certainly different. Um, but 
when you're when I think Reince Priebus decided to take the job as White House COS, he decided that he need th- this campaign needs and and now this presidency will need adults in the room who aren't going to let the country go off the deep end. And I would certainly I was certainly very happy to see that um, Reince Priebus, Sean Spicer, and Katie Walsh all came on the White House payroll. So since then, in the last five months, all those people you named have resigned or I think Katie Walsh, did she resign or was she fired? Uh, she was moved over to the super PAC. Okay, but they're all out of the cabinet administration. And also Walter Schaub, he resigned as director of the Office of Government Ethics after clashing with the White House over Trump's shady financial dealings. Uh, Michael Dubke, he had actually just resigned as the communications director and was replaced, replaced by the famous Anthony Scaramucci, fired after 10 days for his uh, expletive-filled tirade against members of Trump's administration in The New Yorker. Sean Spicer resigned. Reince Priebus resigned. Steve Bannon was dismissed as chief strategist. And Sebastian Gorka, that character, he resigned and or was fired as Trump's deputy assistant. And then, of course, Tom Price. He resigned in disgrace as Secretary of Health and Human Services after spending over a million dollars of taxpayer money on private planes and military jets. Now, that was all within the past five months. So before that, we had, you know, Michael Flynn, James Comey, and whatnot. I know. We still got three more years of this. Well, you said in the clip that Ryan, Sean Spicer, and the like took their jobs probably because they recognized the need for adults in the room. So they're all gone. Who are the adults in the room now? I would say uh, General John Kelly, General McMaster, um, Nikki Haley is certainly an adult, Rex Tillerson certainly an adult, um, Defense Secretary General Mattis certainly an adult. Um, say what you will about uh, Press Secretary uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, but she is she's very good at her job, um, which is... Lying? To, which is to defend the president and be open to the press. I don't think she's... She hasn't shut down the press. I think she, I mean, she's held press conference almost every day. Um, That's I mean, admirable. It's, it's, not the job, it's not the job of the press secretary to, uh, to be, her constituents are not the press. Her constituent is the person sitting in the Oval Office. So, Right, but here's the thing. I think Sean Spicer, I think he, he resigned because he said it was, you know, in the press it was because... He was so against Anthony Scaramucci. I think that may have been true, but I think he looked at that as a godsend because he needed that that reason to quit a job that I think he hated. He hated having well, to go. Well, I'm, I'm not going to speculate about what Sean the reasons why Sean Spicer uh, decided to leave uh, the West Wing. But I mean, I we'll wait for the book. But um, well, the fact that he was on the Emmys making fun of his own self lying on his first day on the job, and he's gone on. To, it's funny because he's actually been remarkably public. I mean, he was on Jimmy Kimmel and all this stuff. He's made himself available, and he's kind of it, he hasn't said it explicitly, but he can tell that you know it was uncomfortable lying. And you know, we said John Kelly. Okay, many people, including a lot of high-ranking Democrats, did. They, I mean, they had such high hopes for him. He was the first guy you mentioned. And people were sure, if nothing else, that when he became chief of staff, well, I mean, he'd bring much-needed order, discipline to the White House. And then he started saying things like this. Robert E. Lee was an honorable man. The lack of an ability to compromise uh, led to the Civil War. Okay. That 
along with attacking and lying about a sitting congresswoman for simply calling out Trump's inappropriateness and perhaps insensitivity. That caught people off guard. But should it? Yeah, have? I think it caught. I think it caught everyone off guard. It caught certainly caught me off guard. Right, but then I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, I mean, sure, compared to a lot of the, you know, criminals. I mean, there have been indictments now, and some people who do kind of seem like puppets a little bit, and relatives in the White House, the Trump White House. Yeah, he looks really. He looked really good. But this is the same guy who caught Steve Bannon's eye as someone they could trust to be hawkish on the southern border when he was in his first post. And he was in charge of two of Trump's most racist policies, banning Muslims, deporting Mexicans. And he was, and it wasn't just, see, we're talking about, we talk about Sarah Huckabee Sanders and how she's doing her job and it's her post and that's it. We can't judge. Well, whether- and I think you could say the same thing of the cabinet. I mean, Rex Tillerson, his job is to give his advice, which is the reason why I assume the president hired him um, is because he values his advice um, and his management skills. And but John Kelly was a true believer in those those policies. Well, but how? I mean, how much can you say true believer? Because John well, Kelly, uh, like Rex Tillerson, like Rex Tillerson, his job is to the president sets the agenda, and it's the cabinet's job to just like the senior staff in the White House, um, just like everyone who works for the West Wing, it's their job to execute the agenda that the president sets, whether it's Republican or Democrat. Yeah, but see, I'm not even thinking that way. I'm not thinking Republican or Democrat. And here's John Kelly in his own words. Are you, the Department of Homeland Security, considering a a new initiative that would separate children from their parents if they try to enter the United States illegally? I am considering... Uh, exactly that. Seventy-five percent of the people that the great men and women of ICE have taken into custody, seventy-five percent are criminals. The other twenty-five percent are not uh, uh, the valedictorians of the high school class. <laughs> True believer. I mean, that's that's not well, a- saying you're considering something isn't the same as saying I am going to implement it. Um, and when he's talking about statistics, I would say that the Secretary of Homeland Security. Either it doesn't matter under what administration has probably better numbers than you or I do. I would bet my entire life savings that he pulled that number out of his ass at that moment. <laughs> the way he's seventy-five percent of them are criminals, and the rest are not. They're valedictorians. Does that really sound like something they've really studied up on? I'm willing, just like I'm always willing. I will give James Comey the benefit of the doubt. I am willing to give the Homeland Security Secretary at the time, now the White House Chief of Staff, the benefit of the doubt when I don't have access to the kind of information that they have. Okay, well, the way he makes it sound, it sounds like he's not a fan of refugees. He told the New York Times that if it were up to him, the number of refugees admitted to the United States would be between zero and one. So what's that mean? We're going to cut one in half? I don't, I mean, come on. So those are things that actually were on his own. I mean, they asked him that as, as an individual. You know, well, if it were up to him, he didn't have to say that. That was well. I would say he he would only be an individual before he was confirmed as Homeland Security Secretary. Once he's confirmed as Homeland Security Secretary, everything he says, just like everything he says once he was made White House Chief of Staff, everything he says is not coming from John Kelly, the person. It's coming from John Kelly, White House Chief of Staff. John oh. Kelly, Homeland Security Secretary. It doesn't matter whether he's saying this is just my personal opinion or not we're talking about a guy who everyone was excited to have become chief of staff because he was not a puppet because he was his own person he believed in discipline and strict leadership and all that stuff and now we're saying well everything he says is just coming from trump's mouth 
Well, but that's pretty much, I mean, I don't think there were, I don't think anyone had any illusions about the fact that John Kelly would not be speaking for the president, because he will be, he is, um, and he has to, by all accounts, he has established a different degree of um, order and discipline in the West Wing than, say, what was uh, happening under Reince Priebus. Reince had a very much, uh, a little more... Reince was uh, more of a puppet. Well, I would say Reince had a little more, he was a little more loose and a little more open to different ideas, different kind of flow than General Kelly has been. Um, so, Does it trouble you at all? First of all, actually, before I even get into that, I do have to say that let's put it in a different context. Let's say I audition for a, a new play and I get cast as the lead role and, and suddenly I get the rest of the script, not just the sides I auditioned with, and I think it looks like a complete and utter disaster, a piece of crap that I really don't even want anything to do with. I'm not just going to, I mean, maybe I should, but I would not think to myself, well, I auditioned and I have to live out this director's vision and blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be in a production that I think is complete crap from literally the ground well, up. Well, but that's your but that's your choice. Right. And so that's the thing. When we say that, you know... But it's, again, I don't think that's a, a fair analogy. Consider, I mean, I don't think you can compare a, a touring musical or a Broadway play to what's going on in the White House. Right, I think their job is more important. entirely different scale. I I think people, people regardless of who wins an election, people do take uh, jobs in the West Wing and in the Cabinet and in the various 13 departments um, at whatever level out of a sense of duty to country. And I, I... just don't think that's a proper analogy when you're talking about the point um, is the point is not to say yeah i mean like they're obviously comparable in terms of importance the point is only that you don't have to they are yes they may have taken these positions as a, out of a sense of duty and whatnot but the whole point is to have some control over what takes place they want to be able to keep it you know well sure but when you're i mean i i hate to belabor the analogy but it's only because you brought it up just when you're if you get cast in a in a piece of theater you're doing it either for the money or because you like the the material that's not the case when you're talking about government um, when you're talking about government no one does it for the money because honestly the money's not that good so you're doing it out of a sense of duty and nothing else really and people were hoping that general kelly's sense of duty would be to kind of not be to not go in front of the press and lie. Well, I would well sure but i would say he did in it. that case which who would who would you rather have as white house chief of staff steve bannon or general john kelly well that's what i that's actually leads me to my next question does it trouble you at all that this guy a guy who says dumb and racist things about the civil war and non-whites and who attacks and lies about a, a sitting congresswoman that now he's looked at as the bastion of hope and the beacon of like he's going to save us well the thankfully the union won the civil war and we ended slavery and i think general kelly chose his words poorly um but i i am i would much rather have general kelly serving as white house chief of staff than steve bannon or sebastian gorka or stephen miller or hope hicks i mean it, it just just go down the list of who's in senior staff in the west wing and i would mu- i would take general kelly over any of them any day of the week how about george w bush's chief of staff uh, Andy Card and Josh Bolton—they were great. I mean, I would I would take them over 
General Kelly. I would take. I mean, they right. they shepherded they shepherded a a a White House through a very one of the most turbulent times in our country's history since World War II. So that's what I'm saying, though. I'm not saying is General Kelly the best of Trump's crew. I'm saying, does it bother you that he is the best of Trump's crew? I, I mean, it bothers me that Trump is in the White House. So, I mean, once we're, if we're going to go that far, I mean, it's, it's really, who is the best of a bad lot? Maybe, but when you're talking about realistic options, yes, I think General Kelly is the best that we can expect. What about Reince? Reince was very good. Reince, uh, I think Reince had relationships on the Hill that, Trump didn't have, and I think he was instrumental in giving confidence to Republican and Democratic members of Congress that this White House was going to be someone they could work with. But then he left. And then he left, and I think General Kelly was, is probably the best successor that Reince probably could have had. But why do you think he left? Because he found out that, in fact... This isn't I'm gonna not going to speculate on why Reince Priebus left. No, I'm not. No, I, I will wait for the book. But why do you think he left? I don't know. I honestly couldn't speculate. I cannot begin to imagine what has gone on in that White House other than what's been reported. Well, look, you know, I consider, I look at to you and kind of hold you up as the, not the reasonable Republican, but someone that we can have this civil discussion and someone who I we can disagree about certain things and remain totally civil. But lately, I feel like it's kind of a dawned on me that our ability to discuss issues and policies, and I'm talking about actual issues as opposed to people and positions and whatnot at any given time, I feel like it has less to do with you know, our ability to be civil and more to do with the fact that a lot of your positions and views don't seem to fit within what has become today's Republican Party. Well, that's, I mean, I, I would have been one of the members on the, in the well of the Senate standing up and applauding, like Ben Sass did, um, applauding Jeff Flake's uh, very eloquent farewell address, um, more or less, farewell address on the floor of the Senate um, a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I empathized a lot with what he had to say. Um, and as far as what goes on in this White House, I, I honestly, I, it's, it's watching... Watching it play out um, in the media and on Twitter, and it, it it just it blows my mind. And it blows my mind that it's only been uh, ten months. It, it, it's really shocking. I really, honestly, have no idea what's going on over there, and I have no idea where it's going to go and how it's going to end up. I think Robert. Mueller, I think the best thing this country has going for it right now is Robert Mueller, mm-hmm. and we are all waiting to see what what he does and how his investigation concludes. I talked a little bit about Jeff Flake earlier in the show. Do you, I like what he said too. Actually, in fact, I love what he said in his farewell speech, but the fact that he recognized and called out all that stuff, all these, you know, the fact that Trump is doing things that should not be considered normal, that are not okay. Then he's quitting. Like, isn't, how much good is he going to do to stand up against Trump? Trump implementing that craziness? Not well. I would say if he if he were deciding to run for re-election, then he would have had to probably vote certain ways that he on key legislation such, such as the uh, tax bill or health care when they bring it up again. Um, I mean, 
or any kind of budget legislation or national security package he might have had to vote a certain way that he ordinarily might vote another way on if he weren't running for re-election. Now, why do you say that? Um, I mean, just because in order to... Uh, you saw an example of it in 2010 when John McCain ran for re-election against uh, J.D. Hayworth in the primary. Um, John McCain said, it's time for us to build that darn fence, which obviously everyone has seen and known over the last six years that that's something that John McCain either doesn't want, didn't feel it worth following through on, or anything in between. Um, but he had to say it in order to defeat someone in a primary that was running to John McCain's right. Uh, and that's just, that's what Republicans are faced with these days. But that saying they're more that. Republicans in red states are more afraid of a primary than they are of a general election. And if you can stomach running to someone's right, running to an extreme right in a primary, good for you. And then, you know, doing whatever you do once you get reelected. And Jeff Flake obviously was not comfortable doing that. But... Okay, but you mentioned John McCain. So, yeah, he had to say that, perhaps. But he has since gone on to win re-election more than once since, or maybe, yeah, more than once since then. And he didn't necessarily vote in that way. And also, there's John McCain now, who, thank God, was the saving grace vote. Now, we can talk about whether or not it was because he's, this is probably his last term with his brain and his age and whatnot. But, you know, there's Lisa Murkowski, there's Susan Collins and whatnot. Now, I get that their constituents may be different, but don't you think that it takes a little more courage and is more... Uh, well, but you have to have... You have to know that you're going... that there's a chance of winning. And Jeff Flake, obviously, it was a combination probably of both for him, that he didn't see a chance of winning and he... And any chance of winning, he would have had to move to, he would have had to take such extreme positions and such extreme votes that it made it ultimately not worth it for him and made him uncomfortable with being in elected office in that way. Don't you think? And I think you saw that reflected in his speech. Is it sad? Like, is that the reason you think more Republicans have not stood up against Trump's absolute insanity at times? Um, I, I would say that there's there's poli- it, it's it's all about I mean it's all politics it's all for elected members of Congress it's what is the vote I have to take tomorrow what are the votes I'm going to have to take in the future and if you're a House member or a Senate member up for re-election next year it's am I the best person do I think I'm the best person for this job or if I decide not to run is there someone who I think is just as good who isn't crazy that could replace me. I think those are all things that are always going through an elected official's mind. Yeah, but that's in normal politics. Like Lindsey Graham, John McCain, there are others. They are people who have been in the Senate for a very long time. They have been reelected multiple times. Sure, but the but the Republican primary electorate, and you're talking about Republicans in red states, which again they're more afraid of a primary than they are of a general election. Um, I mean, they're they're weighing the cost benefit of speaking out versus speaking up. So, okay, does it bother? See, like, just the way you're talking about the people in your party and where they live and read and how people have to act as an elected official. Does that not bother you? I mean, like, people like there. This is this whole fiasco has led some people, some you know, party leaders 
to leave the party. I mean, George Will, Joe Scarborough, they've left over this. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call George Will and Joe Scarborough party leaders. Uh, George I mean, Scarborough would, was a congressman. Well, a long time ago now, but um, I mean, he's, he's a TV personality now. I would say leaders of the party, I would say it was shocking to see someone like Bob Corker, mm -hmm. um, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, announce he's not running for re-election. And someone who, uh, he was a senator who endorsed Trump, campaigned with Trump, and now has spent the last few weeks, few months, calling him out. Right, um, as and the only should. way, the only reason he can do that is because he announced he's not running for re-election. Otherwise, I guarantee you, he would have had one, if not multiple, primary challenges, and he probably would have been beaten in a primary. And then there's Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions was the first elected Republican official to get on Trump's team. He stood for, with him from beginning to end. He became Attorney General, and Trump has been completely bashing him oh yeah he's the he's the person who just must must love a bad boyfriend you know but you guys but your party is sitting there watching this happen i mean like i get that people have well, to it's like 20 it's like in 2010 the uh, republican incumbents who like bob bennett one of the most if not the most conservative member of the senate up to that point defeated in a primary by someone running to his right who is now the incumbent senator no one saw that coming just like I don't. I think everyone is shocked and terrified by what they're seeing in the Republican primary electorate. Are you? I, I'm honestly at this point not surprised. But okay. But doesn't that after after watching it evolve from 2010 into I thought we were on a good path in 2014 because we were starting to elect more moderate members, uh, members who could win statewide in purple states and in some blue states. I mean, we've got great governors right now in Massachusetts and uh, Maryland. The two most popular governors in the country are Republicans in blue states. You, well, yeah, but with them, some of the most unpopular governors are Republicans in red states. Sam Brownback. But well, Christie, Chris Christie is the most unpopular governor right now in the country. Well, he's also one of the most unpopular public figures. But the fact that, like, just people like to say that both parties... Have you ever considered leaving the party? It doesn't... I don't think you ever have. I don't think I ever have, no. And why not? Uh, because I think that the only way to change the party is by staying in it. And if I leave the party, the party's not going to change. And people who I think are dangerous will only have a bigger voice if I leave. Isn't that the exact position that Jeff Flake just didn't take? <laughs> well, no, he's not leaving the party. He's not changing his party registration. He's saying that I can't be an effective member of Congress at this point, because the party doesn't want me. Well, he doesn't even know that. I mean, he's not even taking that chance. He's well, if, I mean, if you've looked at polling, he's never been above 40%, I think, in the last three to four months. Okay, now wait. Let's, I mean, if we want to talk about polling, hello, 2016 presidential polls. Well, but, I mean, he's a candidate. He's got, no. his, own internal, he's got his own internal polling going on. All and right. he, I assume, trusts that. So did that was... Hillary. I'm assuming his internal polling match matches up with the public polls, which is part of the reason why he decided it wouldn't be worth it. Okay, well, I want to get to this part because this is, I just have to, I have to ask you this. People like to say, and this is, and it's true, that both parties have their issues and problems, and God knows it's true. And they also have their bad apples and whatever, and we're dealing with them, both of our parties. That's all true, but I do have to say you know, even our, you know, we have Maxine Waters, who I think says some things that are over the top and whatnot. We have, frankly, the Bernie Sanders people who I, I was about to say, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah. However, I don't think we have like a Louis Gohmert 
or a James Inhofe. I, I can't recall anyone like a Steve Booyer of Indiana going down on the House floor and talking about smoking lettuce. You know, and, and if we had their equivalents, and it's a false equivalence to say that Bernie and Maxine Waters are like them, I'd be embarrassed by that. I mean, don't they embarrass you and the party? Uh, they people like Louis Gomer, they absolutely embarrass me. Um, I was very, very disappointed to see Charlie Dent, who was the chairman, co-chairman of the Tuesday Group House Republican Caucus, um, and also a member of the Republican Main Street Partnership Group, um, decide he wasn't going to run for re-election. I mean, those are the people that I like and respect, um, and they've all pretty much tried to find equal footing, common ground. And really, honestly, in my opinion, looking at whether or not the legislation is good for their constituents and then voting accordingly. Novel concept. I know, right? Well, but, but okay, given that, given the state of affairs, given the well, characters... I mean, Democrats, Democrats should be, I would say Republicans should be scared right now about losing the House. Um, so it's like you either... You either have to give in and embrace the Trump faction, which, by the way, I agree. In 2010, when the Tea Party formed and kind of really got their footing, they seemed insane. They, I mean, they, they had some, some really radical positions. Sarah Palin was a spokeswoman for them, and Sarah Palin looks like... Well, Sarah Palin was always in it for the money. But she did look like a, you know, zealot. I mean, she looked, they all looked like they were so over the top. Now with like Trump's base, they look totally tame. And it kind of all comes back to the first thing I asked you, voting. Don't you think that the reason this Trump faction is having so much power, which from what you've said, it sounds like they have complete control over the entire Republican Party. I mean, every yes, I would say yes and no. I would say if you're a House member, yeah, you, I, I would be terrified of that. If you're in the U.S. Senate, it also it depends on where you are. Um, Jeff Flake was in one of the reddest states in the country. Um, I mean, I, I'm trying to think. I think there are maybe one or two um, Democrats in the congressional delegation from Arizona. Um, I believe that the Republicans control... Both houses, both uh, houses of the Arizona legislature, all statewide electeds are Republicans. Um, but if you look at, say, Cory Gardner in Colorado, or if you're looking at um, Missouri, Indiana, relatively, I would say, swing states that do tend to trend red, but they are swing states, you're not seeing a whole lot of radical primary activity going on on the right, um, unlike in Arizona and in Alabama, which... You know, I think one of the best things that could happen to the Republicans next year, or I guess in December, um, would be if, uh, and hopefully, because I think Roy Moore is a, mm -hmm. I, I really have no words to describe how how much I dislike Roy Moore and think he is an embarrassment to not only my party, but our country. Well, uh, hello, look at the White House. Well, but I would say that electing Roy Moore into the U.S. Senate would be a, 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 almost a step beyond uh, no. Donald Trump See? because we've we've had because we might not have you can you can make the case in some states in some voters that they didn't know what they were getting with Trump or they thought they were getting something that they weren't or that they were just voting 
party over you know um, party over personality, or that they just couldn't stomach voting for Hillary Clinton. Um, but we know what Trump is now. It's, well, it's been almost a year. You but, never, and we, and we know what Roy Moore. We know what we're getting with Roy Moore. Um, I think people knew more about Donald Trump than they do about Roy Moore. I mean, you. I feel like you never would have said that a year Roy and a half Moore, ago. Roy Moore has a record. Roy Moore has an extensive record. Trump never ran for anything. But he, he was on. He flip flopped. I mean, he was a Democrat, then he was an Independent, then he was a Democrat, then he was a Republican. You know, you really didn't know what you were getting with him because one day he would say, you know, I'm very pro-choice, and then he'd say, No, 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 that's not true. That's not true. That was what I said yesterday, but that has no bearing on today. So you, you knew really, you were getting an incompetent who you could not trust. Well, yes, and people were satisfied enough with that, I suppose, but um, <laughs> except for the three million people who didn't vote for well, Trump. you mean the three million more people who voted for Hillary. Correct, correct. So, um, but, I think, but I think with Roy Moore, you know, he was removed as Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court twice. Yeah. I mean, we know what we're getting with Roy Moore, and if he wins in Alabama, which uh, I would say is likely, um, then uh, that's, it's... It will, yeah. it will be a shock to the U.S. Senate once he, once he is sworn in. But I hope he doesn't. I think the best thing that could happen to my party right now is if Doug Jones wins that election. What do you... What I meant when I said voting is we talked about how a lot of people don't even know that there's an election tomorrow. And honestly, even when it came to the 2016 presidential election, voter turnout was way, way down. I have always held firm, and I still do believe this, that if, and I don't think, I'm not an advocate for um, required voting or whatever, but if on some miracle we had some occasion, some election where literally every registered voter uh, had to vote, I do think that there would be the majority of people, whether they're Republican or Democrats, I do think that common sense and reasonable people would outweigh the Trump factions, the Tea Partiers. However, they don't know, they don't care enough, and they don't necessarily make the effort to go vote. And therein lies the problem. Well, that's, you can't make everyone vote. That's, I mean, you're creeping awfully close to Stalinism on that one. Oh, what? First of all, I said I'm not an advocate for it. And, but I'm, what I'm saying is I'm talking about just the fact that the people who are you know, the most extreme, they are the first to, in line to vote. They will never miss Well, on, in both in, in both parties. I mean, you saw that with Bernie in New Hampshire. You saw that with Bernie in Wisconsin. You're still seeing it with Bernie today and candidates he endorses and doesn't endorse, you know? I mean, right, it, it's that's, on both sides. But that's what I mean, the reasonable people and the kind of, you know, just moderates or normal people, really, just normal people need to be informed and need to go vote. I think that would help a lot. But I do want to get back to this one thing because it's, I, I just need to understand it. With It's not just what's going on in the party and some of the characters and representatives and people who are now handicapped and having to quit, but again, your positions. I mean, social issues, you are, you are pretty liberal on social issues. I would say I align more or less along more Democratic lines than Republican lines, yes. Right. And then even when, honestly, at this point, when it comes to certain, I mean, I can't imagine you're supportive of Trump's uh, egging on North Korea. Nope. And then I don't know how you feel about the border security, but, you know, having no refugees, all this extreme and then extremer than the most extremist vetting, all that stuff. Like, Well, I, the one thing I will say is ridiculous about refugees is that 
they go through a two-year vetting process. So starting from the day you apply to for refugee status. There's a two-year vetting process by both the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, I mean, y- you name it. Anyone who has to vet anyone immigrating to the U.S., it's a two-year process. And so It's I already like extreme. To, I, I, well, I would like to think that at the end of a two-year process, we know whether or not you're coming into this country to either be a productive citizen or someone who's looking to terrorize us. Right. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, so it is pretty thorough and extreme. So all this talk about extremer, extremist vetting is nonsense. It couldn't really, I don't know, what. how could it be more extreme? But so, like, that's the stuff that typically you would be more on the right about is, you know, homeland security, budget stuff, spending, cutting back on, uh, you know, some social programs that perhaps... Well, I would say I wouldn't align totally with the right on everything like that. I would say I'm much, I, I, I adhere pretty close to the center um, which is, you know, in in one year we might need to we might need to cut back on defense spending. We might need to increase domestic um, entitlement spending. We might need to decrease. We might need to make cuts to entitlement spending in order to make it last for another twenty or thirty years. You know, it's 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 really all about pulling the levers in the right way to make sure that the country works and that the water comes out of the faucets, our roads are paved, and that the traffic lights work. Right, and right now. All this talk about climate change being a hoax. Uh, oh yeah, Scott Pruitt. Scott Pruitt is quite possibly one of the worst things that could happen to uh, the natural state of our planet right now. So, and this is who's representing the Republicans. How do you how do you stay in that party and feel adequately, properly represented? Because I know that at some point the fever will break. That Trump will only last four years, and if the Democrats are smart, they will nominate someone who. <laughs> can win uh, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and then win everything that Hillary won in 2016, because really that's all they needed. She needed those three states, and she only lost them by, I think, one point or less. Yeah, but the way you just said that makes it sound like you want that to happen. I'm constantly, I'm constantly aghast by how the Hillary Clinton campaign flubbed last year's election. Well, no way. It was because they were trying to run it on the cheap. I don't know if it was because they were overconfident. I don't know. I honestly don't. Well, those are those are all legitimate complaints from people who weren't involved. And I think Donna Brazel's book. I mean, I think it's a cheap way of trying to get on TV. Uh, it's also horse crap. I mean, like she's everyone who's talking about this whole. It's proof that the election, the primary, was rigged. And she doesn't even, I don't even think she ever uses that word. I just, well, at one point, she, when the excerpt of her book appeared on Politico, she, it, it, I guess it's in the book, that she said that the primary, she found proof that the primary was rigged, and she called Bernie immediately and was heartbroken to tell him that. And then the next day she says, no, there wasn't any evidence. It's like, well, what are you talking about? She's full of crap. And she was, she is trying to sell a book. She's also angry, and this is the truth, she's angry that she as the chair and by the way let's not forget that she became the chair at the drop of a hat because suddenly debbie washman schultz had to be run out of town she was angry and upset and frustrated to find that she couldn't spend the money willy-nilly and exactly how she wanted to now i can understand how that might be frustrating however the fact of the matter is all the money that they had at that time was raised by the hillary clinton campaign and the reason that had to happen is because the DNC had been mismanaged and run into the ground. So it's not... Well, and that, and that also is, it's not only, you can't only li- um, 
lay that critique at the feet of Debbie Wasserman Schultz, you also have to look at uh, President Obama because he was in charge of the DNC. But going back to your original point, which was beating Trump in 2020, I think following the same playbook that the Clinton campaign laid out in 2016, all you need is just a little more effort in three states that already trend blue in a national election. And let's not, I mean, let's not completely negate the influence that Russia did have on this, which we are finding more and more out about every single day. Even the even the thousands, hundreds of thousands of Facebook ads that were put out there that Facebook, for some reason, adamantly denied ever existing until very recently. Oh, sure. Those have an effect. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. But I think it also it's also incumbent on a national campaign to run a good campaign and to turn out... Not just, I mean, I think Barack Obama went to Michigan maybe two or three times in the month leading up to um, his reelection in 2012. I mean, Michigan, something that no Democrat has lost since, I think, 1988 or 1984. I mean, that's, that's telling. And Hillary Clinton never went to Michigan in October or early November. Well, you read Shattered. She was planning on it, but then these events happened and it never got rescheduled. Well, okay, but they should have been rescheduled. That's something that, you know, you get the candidate on a plane for an event, you know? Right, that's, that's not, she doesn't make her own schedule. But let's, listen, I don't want to relegate this because... I'm just, I'm just saying, all it took, all it need, all, all it seemed to need was just a little bit more effort on their part for her campaign to turn out voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And if a Democrat can win the states that she won and then also push a little bit into those three states that she didn't win that do trend blue. That's how a Democrat can win against Trump in 2020, assuming they'll be running against Trump and not Mike Pence. Well, here's an... Okay, so just this... I have to say this again. Just this conversation about, you know, Democratic strategies and what they need to do and how they can learn from their past mistakes, that, compared to what you were saying earlier about Republicans and how they're just in these deep red districts and they're they're either going to vote a certain way or lose... It sounds like with your positions and your knowledge of strategy and current, you know, climate, why wouldn't you want to join, you know, be a part of a part? I'm not, because it's not like your positions line up with the current Republicans. They don't. They line up with moderate Democrats. I would rather change my party and get my party more to where I am than to, because fundamentally it comes down to the reason I'm a Republican is because of what I think the purpose of the government should be and the purpose of the government should be to Limited. be as little in, as uh, as unintrusive as possible. Like I said, just so, enough government to keep the lights on and keep you know the the water clean, the air clean, and to make sure that our the free market is well regulated because the free market is not going to regulate itself. Doesn't that? But right, what you just said right now doesn't that line up more with the Democrats' platform? Well, not really, because the Democratic platform has always been, since FDR, has been that government is the solution and not the market. And I think that the market has been a better um, provider of solutions than the government over the last 70, 80 years. But when you're talking about small government, as little as possible, and then the Republicans are the ones who want to you know, control women's bodies and talk about who can get married. Well, and that's why I disagree with my party on those issues. But those are big. that is government intrusion. Right, and those are strong things that they strongly believe in. How do you reconcile, like, certain things that you like with big things that they cling on to and really scream about at 
uh, campaigning? Because it's going to be easier, I think, to change parties, as you've seen. Uh, I mean, you saw when the Supreme Court made their landmark decision on gay marriage, suddenly the Republicans are saying, you know what, okay, fine, we'll let that one go. Are they? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, they're talking about revoking it. Well, Trump is, uh, I mean, but we saw his transgender ban in the military was struck down. I mean, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. It's, it's an applause line for a very, very, very small contingent of voters. Um, and I think more, when you're looking at um, polling on millennials, who are the future, we are the future, 60-plus um, percent are in favor of gay marriage, our sure. choice, our pro-immigration. So I'm not all that concerned about changing my party. Uh, I think it'll be easier to change the Republican Party on social issues than what? it will be on the role of government, unlike the Democrats, where I think it'll be much easier, it'll be, you know, where I, I will agree with them on social issues. But wait a minute. There's no way I'm going to be changing the government, um, the party, pla- the Democratic platform on the role of government. Did you not like the fact that when Bill Clinton finished his second term, it was with a surplus, and that's never happened since? Well, yes, but one of the things that we also tend to forget is that Bill Clinton, with the help of Chuck Schumer, deregulated the markets by repealing Glass-Steagall in 2000 and 2001, which led to the financial collapse of 2008. Which is something that Elizabeth Warren has been screaming for ever since. Well, I mean, I was going to say, that's also, I mean, Democrats are not holding those particular two members accountable. Oh, I Chuck think Schumer, she knows Chuck Schumer that. is one of you want to talk about a guy who's been bought and paid for by Wall Street? Oh. That is that is big money Chuck. Well, please. I mean, look. That may be true to some degree, but at least I can count on him to have more fight in him than someone like sadly Mitch McConnell who's supposed to be this this master strategist who can get anything done and now he's being well, a punching bag. because I think he They've got nothing he's got, done. He's got well exactly and I think that's part of the strategy. He's got 52 members, oh. a handful of which like if he loses two members, he loses the Senate majority. Um well, and I think his goal his goal is to maintain the Senate majority, which means that anything that gets passed by this radical I mean the House of Representatives is being held hostage by the freedom, by the radical freedom caucus. Thirty members are holding a four hundred and thirty five member body hostage. Thank God so because anything they, they kept anything the that passes bill. the House <laughs> will be too radical to pass the Senate. And well, I think Mitch knows that, and so he's just letting It'll come to the floor for a vote, and it'll die. But part of the reason why I think he has, and Paul Ryan, I, why they've kind of put up with Trump is because they want to get their tax cuts in. They want to get health care repealed and stuff like that. So that, that's kind of why they've been appeasing Trump. However, it has not worked. They have not gotten anything done, and they probably won't. <laughs> probably not, which will probably be a good thing, because anything that what? Trump signs... How can you say that as a Republican? Because I would rather nothing get done that is on Trump's agenda than then something join, on Trump's agenda gets done. Then join the Democrats and, and actually... <laughs> well, you're talking about changing... Well, no, I would, much rather, I would much rather wait for someone like Marco Rubio or... He has been God, totally negated. Well, no, I would, much rather, I would much rather wait for someone like him or I would much rather wait for someone like Nikki Haley. You know, someone, uh, someone who is much more centrist oriented and much more willing to reach across the aisle um, than someone like Trump. Anything that he wants done that doesn't get done, I consider that a victory as a Republican. But when you're talking about your social stances and even with the markets and Glass-Steagall and stuff, it seems like the Republicans are so far from that that the Democrats, who some outright support the things that you're talking about, 
it would be easier to take the Democrats and maybe well, bring them a center. I, I, but that's why I'm able to, that's why, you know, like you and me, we're able to find common ground on certain issues. Sure, yeah, and that's great. But you're still calling yourself a Republican who are sadly destroying that title. I'm just, I mean, I guess it's admirable that you don't, you wear that title with pride, right? I mean... Well, my heroes will always be Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt, and they were all Republicans. And they would all be so mortified by what's happening. I think they would, yeah. Right. Okay. John, I'm sorry we don't have any more time, but um, you'll have to come back. You're, you're the official first repeat guest on the show. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, well, so you, thanks for having me. You can be a Republican correspondent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. You too, Jonathan. Right. Take care. You too. This is the next best thing. Don't go.